Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. We started this in the fall. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark through the spring, probably into the summer. Uh, we're going to pick up today where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the story of Legion on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus making it very clear a couple of themes that we're going to continue to pick up on in our passage today is this. Uh, one thing, Jesus will continue his ministry in the Sea of Galilee area. That will continue to happen uh, today. Uh, you can see a couple of maps there. The zoom out on the left of Israel, Sea of Galilee north on the north side of Israel. And the zoom in there on the right slide. Two-thirds of Jesus' ministry happening in the Sea of Galilee area. Made it clear two weeks ago, Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, Jesus came for the world. Uh, the Greco-Roman area is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes there with his disciples, begin, begins ministry there, the beginning of Mark chapter 5, uh, which is the reality of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, for God so loved the world. Everyone in the world, the gospel of grace is radically inclusive Radically inclusive for everyone, anyone who would come is invited to come to the table of grace. And so we'll see that theme again, uh, the ministry in the Sea of Galilee area. The second thing that we're going to pick up on, another common theme that's been happening uh, in chapter 4 and also in chapter 5, Mark continues to connect and contrast fear and faith. Uh, we connected fear and faith in the story of Jesus calming the storm. The beginning of Mark 4, there was a contrast of fear and faith last uh, passage that we looked at in the beginning of Mark 5. Again today, the contrast of faith and fear. Today's passage, the fear of death, the fear of disease to people who were really desperate and really afraid. Yet, yet with faith in Jesus. Yet in faith with Jesus. Faith is activated as something that trusts in God, even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of uh, what seems to be a really hopeless situation. We're going to read through these stories, uh, Mark 5, 21 to 43. I'm going to uh, read through the stories together. We're going to unpack a little bit, and then I'm going to make three summary statements uh, that I hope will be relevant uh, for all of us in our lives uh, at the very end. So again, Mark chapter 5, uh, we will pick up Right where we left off two weeks ago, this is the word of God to us this morning, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, he had just been on the eastern side in the country of the Gerasenes ministering to the man called Legion. Now they're going back over to the western shore to a town called Capernaum. Uh, where Jesus had already uh, experienced a lot of time in ministry in that town. He goes back to the other side and the great crowd gathered around him. They really probably never left. If you remember the context, Jesus was teaching this great crowd on the hillside on the western shore, the Sea of Galilee. They go over to the eastern side. He ministers to Legion there. Now they're coming back. The crowd is still there. They're waiting on him. They gathered around him and he was beside the sea and then he then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing Jesus, Jairus fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Which is another word they're just saying, we don't have any idea. There's too many people here. Why are you asking us who touched you? We don't know who touched you. And he looked around, Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter. And he said to her, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's stop there for just a moment. Two stories we have here happening all at the same time. And I think it would be easy probably to consider these stories separately and to spend one Sunday talking about Jairus and his situation and what happens and another Sunday talking about this woman who had been suffering for 12 years. But I think it's pretty clear in the text that Mark doesn't want us to separate these stories. He wants us to understand them together. And I hope in our time that I'll help you understand why I believe Mark wants us to connect these two stories together as one. The story begins, Jesus in his boat with his disciples gets back to the western shore uh, in the town of Capernaum. Jairus, synagogue leader, makes his way through the throngs of people, comes to Jesus. He is desperate for his daughter. It's intense desperation. He is prostrate at Jesus' feet. It says that he was pleading with Jesus earnestly. We have to remember Jairus is a Jewish leader. He's a ruler in the synagogue. That means that he had stature, he had influence, he had clout, he had leadership. Everybody knew who he was. He was the spiritual leader of the community and his desperation was on display, pleading earnestly. He was in grief, he was panicked. Grief, intense desperation, uh, sheds, sheds that thing in us that cares about what everybody thinks of us. When you're in this place, when you're in this place of Jairus, in this kind of a leadership place, he has clout, leadership, everybody's looking, they always look at him, he's the leader. But in a place of desperation, you guys, in a place of grief, you, trust me, you, you, you shake it off. It doesn't matter what everybody thinks, I don't care. I'm desperate for help. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. He is desperate to see his daughter healed. And so Jesus goes with him. But he's interrupted. Jesus is interrupted by a woman who's just as desperate as Jairus was. Different circumstances, different stories, different pain, different suffering. Just as desperate. Jesus is interrupted by this woman. She's coming through the crowd to 
touch him. She had been suffering for many years. Uh, there's a place in a town called Magdala, just to the south of Capernaum, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a chapel there called the Encounter Chapel. We got to go in there in June when I had the privilege of being in Israel. And there's this huge painting. You can see it on the wall there in this room. And that painting is called the Encounter Chapel. It's a beautiful rendition of this story in Mark chapter 5. You can see the hand piercing through all of the feet to touch the cloak of Jesus. What I love about Jesus in this story uh, is that he doesn't seem rushed. Jairus was rushed. Jairus was ready to get to his house and Jesus was on the way with him and Jesus pauses on the way because he felt power come out from him. Um, One person's desperation uh, didn't trump another person's desperation. Jesus is simply available to minister. And she gets his attention by touching his garment. She had been suffering for 12 years. The text doesn't tell us what the nature of her blood loss is. But I believe that we may presume that it was uterine bleeding, which made her ritually unclean by the Jewish ritual law. Ritually unclean for 12 years. She wasn't even allowed to be there. By the law, she was breaking the law by being in that place. She was treated like lepers. She was an outcast. She was isolated. She was alone. She suffers physically, but she also suffers psychologically, emotionally, relationally. She suffered financially. She had spent everything that she had seeking the care of many physicians who actually made the situation worse than it was in the beginning. She's broke. She is impoverished. And she is brazen. She is brazen in her desperation, just like Jairus. She violates Jewish purity regulations by coming to the town, but that's nothing compared to her choice to touch a Jewish rabbi teacher. Certainly she's blowing up regulations, breaking the law by being there. Then she goes to a whole new level by touching the cloak of Jesus because if you come in contact with somebody who is ritually unclean, you also are now ritually unclean. So she made by the Jewish law and regulations, she made Jesus ritually unclean in that moment. And we're readers of the Gospel of Mark. We've been journeying in this Gospel of Mark for a few months now. And by readers of Mark's Gospels, we already know that Jesus doesn't shy away from blowing up religious regulations. And he doesn't do it here. There's no rebuke. There's no shaming. That's not the way of grace. That's not the way of the Gospel. That's not Jesus condemnation, shaming. That's not what Jesus does here. He just asks a question, who touched, who touched my garments? The irony in this story, she had spent all that she had seeking the help of many physicians. She has one encounter with the great physician and it costs her nothing. Perhaps we could say that it cost her brazen faith. But the reality is it cost her nothing because grace doesn't cost anyone anything. Grace is always free. 
And she has an encounter with Jesus and she gets healed. Jesus speaks to her. She comes. She's afraid. She's trembling with fear because she's broken the religious rules. But she is so desperate she doesn't care. But she's still afraid. What is Jesus going to say? And he just simply makes this statement, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is not a word of dismissal. What Jesus does here. This is a word of encouragement and this is a word of empowerment to her. Yes, she was healed physically, but she was also healed psychologically, spiritually, relationally. Daughter, Jesus speaks an identity over her. I've healed you physically, but I'm also speaking an identity of being in a family. I am with you now and you are with me now. Your daughter, you are free. You are healed. This is powerful. You, are, you have been given a new identity. Therefore, therefore, you are, empo- you are empowered to go in peace. The word is peace. The, our understanding of the New Testament word peace comes from the Hebrew word peace, which is shalom. And the word shalom means a lot of things. A lot of reality of the blessing of God is wrapped up in one Hebrew word called peace that Jesus says is yours now. And he goes, go in this. Shalom means well-being. It means wholeness. It means security. It means salvation. Go in shalom. This is Jesus, not Shaming and condemning, but welcoming, welcoming, blessing, empowering. Daughter, you are healed. Go in peace. And so she goes. Now at this moment, I think Jairus, I mean, the text doesn't tell us. But I can only imagine that Jairus is like, what are we doing? Like his daughter was at the point of death. They're moving toward his house. Jesus pauses to bring life and healing and hope to this woman. Don't you think he was anxious to get going? Jesus begins going with Jairus again to his house and he reengages with his desperation. And so while he was still speaking, while Jesus was saying to this woman, go in peace and be healed of your disease, while he was still speaking these words, there came from the ruler's house, people actually were showing up along the way to Jairus, from Jairus' house, who said this, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, some translations, which I enjoy a lot more, but ignoring... Ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Can you imagine the crushing blow it was to Jairus to know that there's some, there's some hope here. Jesus is coming with me. I've heard of the power of Jesus from Nazareth. We're on the way to my house and we pause and he brings healing to this woman and we're too late. We're too late. And Jesus looks at Jairus, he goes, no, 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 no. Do not fear, only believe, only believe. And they begin to move. But Jesus does something particular that I want you to pick up on with the people that came from his house saying, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And he only, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. 
So the chorus of people that came to him saying, your daughter is dead, the naysayers, the skeptics, he said, you're, st- you're, not, coming, you're not coming back to Jairus' house. You're done here. You're done here. And he brings Peter, James, and John, and they continue to Jairus' house. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping, and they were wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. They jeered at him. They doubted him. They laughed at Jesus' declaration of life. But he put them all outside. He put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, who was Peter, James, and John. And he went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, this is an Aramaic phrase, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise, or I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, which is, it's kind of funny because she was dead and now she's alive. She's going to start walking around. He's like, don't tell anyone. Everybody's going to know. No one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. It's a, it's a miracle. Dead people, dead people don't eat food, you guys. Only alive people eat food. Give her something to eat. She is alive. Before they get to Jairus' house, the doubters, the doubters are leaning in. The skeptics are coming for Jairus. And they say, it's too late. Your daughter's already dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Which, which I believe is an undercut of the power of God in Jesus. Because what can, a, what can a teacher do about death? I mean, she's already gone. Hope is lost. The chorus of the skeptics, the undercut of Jesus. What can he do about this? I believe this is pretty typical when people are believing God to do something big, supernatural, miraculous. There will be a chorus of skeptics coming against it. Anytime someone is believing God for something big, the doubters will sing. And if you want to hear their chorus... Just start believing God in your life for something big, something miraculous, something powerful, and the chorus of skeptics and doubters will find you. Just ask Noah about the chorus of doubters who are mocking and laughing at him for believing God to do something big. Ask Moses. Ask Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Ask any of the men or women that were full of faith that the Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this like chapter, like this hall of faith. Ask any of those men and women about the chorus of doubters that sing when we're believing God to do something big. It says Jesus ignored the chorus. He ignored what they said and he did not let the doubters come with them any further. He looks at Jairus, verse 36, and he says, do not fear, only believe. In the Greek, That word believe, it's a verb, it's active, it's like love. Love is a verb, don't tell me you love me, show me. You can see it, same with belief, same with trust. And Jesus is saying, activate your 
faith. Actually, the Greek verb there, it's in the present imperative active. What Jesus is telling Jairus there in that moment of intense hopelessness is just like you had faith in coming to me in the very beginning and saying, if you'll touch my daughter, she'll be healed. You got to activate that faith right now as well. Activate your faith. It's active, present, imperative, active. And so they go and they get to his house and he had already ignored one chorus of doubters and said, you're not coming. And then he shows up at the house and there's a whole nother chorus of doubters and skeptics there waiting on him. And they're crying and wailing and Jesus makes a declaration of life and they laugh, they laugh at him. And it says, Jesus put them all out. In other words, Jesus, I think it was pretty dramatic. Jesus is in the house, she's asleep, she's not dead. They laugh. He's like, you know what? Just get out of here. All of you laughing, doubting, get out of the house. Everybody out of here. And I think they may have been defensive when Jesus was putting them on the outside. This is just my own paraphrase of the story about what could have happened. I mean, I think they meant well. I mean, they showed up. They were caring about the story. They were grieving. They were just being realistic. They were just being realistic here. Don't set yourself up for disappointment. We love you, but we're just being realistic, Jairus. Or we're trying to keep you from failure and disappointment, Jairus. Sounds a bit like Christianese to me. Sounds a bit like Christianese to me. We had some of those statements said to us uh, about nine years ago. When we were believing, when our family, Lindsay and I, when we were believing God for something really, really big that required a lot of risky faith, moving our family across the country into a town we knew no one with a two-month-old baby. It's a little crazy, you guys. It is. To start a church out of our living room, the reality of what we are all experiencing right now in this moment is, I believe, a supernatural work of God. But we experienced the chorus of skeptics before we ever got here. Guess what? A few people who loved us told us, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, you know so many people in the Nashville area. You've been on staff at a couple churches. Just plant a church right here. Don't, don't do it. You've, you've moved to you've moved to. California, you've moved to Alaska, now you're back here, you've been here two years, now you're moving to Colorado. Jason, get yourself together, man. You're moving your family around too much. It's too risky. Eight out of 10 parachute church plants don't make it in our country. Some things you read are nine out of 10. And we're like, you know what? We believe, we believe that God has given us this vision and we're gonna, we're gonna step forward to it. We're, we're going. We love you, but we're just, we're just being realistic. We're trying, to keep, we're trying to keep you from failure and disappointment. Our statement was, well, if it doesn't work, at least we're going to live in Colorado. That's where we want to live anyway. So we're going. But it was a big, big dream we had. And we had a chorus of skeptics in our life. Let me say this to you. When you are believing God for something big in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your ministry, when you are believing God to do something big in your life, you need people who will believe it with you. 
And sometimes that inner circle might have to be small. Because sometimes when you're believing God to do something really powerful and huge and supernatural and miraculous, the reality is you're probably going to have more doubters and skeptics than you have people coming alongside of you going, we believe God to do the same thing for you. So you may have to put a few people on the outside who mean well, who love you, but their negative energy, their negative energy is disruptive to the supernatural work of God you're believing for. Are y'all with me right now? And you may have to put a few people outside. Don't be afraid to put those who aren't believing and operating in faith out. Jesus does it twice in the story. When I was studying this passage, this was what was jumping off the page. Oh my gosh, he, he didn't let the chorus of skeptics come with him to his house. And then he sent, put everybody out of the house. It was only the mother and the father and Peter and James and John. That was it. Everybody else was on the outside before the miracle happened. They go into the room. He grabs her hand in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which is just an ordinary phrase, you guys. It just means little girl, I say to you, get up. And she did. And she got up and she ate. Miracle, miracle. The God of miracles, the power of God on display. Two, two stories with radical, miraculous, physical healing today. I want to make some summary points for us uh, from these two passages. The two main characters in this story, Jairus and the woman, occupy opposite ends of the economic, social, and religious spectrum in that community. They couldn't be more opposite. Jairus is a male. He's a leader in the synagogue. He has honor. He has respect. He has provision. The woman is nameless in the story. She is unclean. She is walking pollution. She is not allowed to be there. She has no honor. She has no respect. She has no provision. She is poor. She is not even allowed to enter the synagogue that Jairus is a ruler over. Everything is opposite ends in their worlds. They have two things in common. Everything is opposite in their whole reality. Two things in common. One, they're desperate. They are both desperate. So they align in their places of desperation. And two, they have both heard or they have seen the power of Jesus to bring healing to people's lives. That's all that they have in common. And so the point is this, that faith in Jesus enables all, all people. Faith in Jesus enables all, the rich and the poor, the male and the female, the honored and the dishonored, the clean and the unclean. No matter who a person is or where they've been or where they are or what they've done, all are equals before Jesus. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28, a familiar verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. This is new covenant reality. This is a new covenant reality of the gospel of grace. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no distinction anymore. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew-Gentile. There's no distinction. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for all. For you are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus enables all. Hallelujah. The gospel of grace. Jesus came for the world. The second thing I want to point out to you in these stories, uh, this will be very clear next week and next week's passage as well. Faith opens the door to the power of God in our lives. And Jesus tells us plainly where the power is. Verse 34, uh, 34. he says, your faith, he says to the woman, your faith has healed you. Faith in what? Faith in who? Jesus says to her, your faith in me. Your faith in me is what has brought healing to your life. Faith in Jesus is where the power is. Again, faith is a verb. It's something that we embody in our action. We activate faith. It's something that can be seen. Faith can be seen like four friends who brought their paralytic friend earlier in the Gospel of Mark, dug through the hole. Remember the story? Dug through the hole, lowered their friend at the feet of Jesus. It says Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? The faith of the friends. They were activating their faith. Faith looks like something. And it looked in that scene like four friends lowering their paralytic friend. And Jesus says, sees their faith, forgives their friend, heals their friend. Faith looks like something. It looks like a woman reaching out on a crowded street to touch the cloak of Jesus. I love how the NIV application commentary helps us understand the freedom of faith. It is a verb. But there is freedom in faith and wherever your faith is along the spectrum of faith. We as people, we love to categorize things. We like to, we like to put things in order and steps. And the reality is, it's just faith, church. It's faith. Wherever your faith is along the spectrum, the NIV application commentary says that this way, faith can be imperfect. It can be bold. It can be timid. It can be brave. It can be laced with fear. Know that the, the faith of Jairus and this woman, their faith was activated, but there was also fear as well. It can be laced with fear. What counts for faith to be effective is for it to be directed rightly, directed rightly and solely to Jesus. Faith in the person, in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith opens the door to the power of God. Thirdly and lastly this morning, these stories, these stories don't prescribe us guaranteed physical healing in our lives. These stories aren't formulas. So we, we have to be careful with our theology when we read stories of miraculous, powerful, breakthrough, radical healing. And that's our passages of the morning. But know this, Talitha Kum is not some mysterious mumbo jumbo abracadabra phrase. That we go, oh, if we just learn that phrase and we speak that phrase, and that's what's going to bring the healing. It's, there's, no, there's no magic trick going on here. It was just an ordinary common phrase in Aramaic. Little girl, I say to you, get up. There was no 
power necessarily in the cloak that Jesus was wearing. The power is in the person of Jesus where her faith was directed to Jesus. She touched his cloak, but there's no power in the cloak. This isn't about formulas and magic tricks. And we got to figure out these formulas so we can operate these formulas uh, so that people find healing in our lives. The power is in Jesus. It's in his person. And so I want to caution us not to read these stories or other miraculous stories like this in the Gospels and try to figure out formulas. Read these stories and see that in, this, in these two stories, at this time, at that place, in these two people's lives, their faith brought miraculous breakthrough. Hallelujah. The reality at that time and still today is this, evil, sickness, death continue to exist in our world. The reality, faith in action, faith in action does not always result. It does, it's not guaranteed. It doesn't always result in the miraculous prayer we are asking for. We must learn to trust in God's sovereignty if we get the breakthrough we're paying for on this side of heaven or if we see the breakthrough on the other side. We must trust in God's sovereignty. These stories that we just read today, they're narrative stories in the life and the ministry of Jesus. They don't offer us explanation for why an all-loving and all-powerful God allows evil and suffering to continue to exist in this world. But they do affirm, hear this, they do affirm that God is on the side of those who are hurting and suffering. They do affirm that God is all-loving and they do affirm that God is all-powerful. Amen? They do affirm those things. He stops. He pays attention to the suffering of Jairus. He stops. He pays attention to the suffering of the woman. He goes with them. He is attentive to them. He heals a woman that no physician could cure. He restores life to a little girl when all hope was gone. And this Jesus, this Jesus from Mark chapter 5 is the Jesus that we worship in this church. This he, he, he is the God who was, he is the God who is, he is the God who is to come. This Jesus says to you and me today by the authority and the power of his word that is living and active church, don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid. In that place, in that place of desperation in your life, in that place of unknown in your life, in that place they're asking God and believing God to do something big in your life, don't be afraid, just believe. The woman, she had been bleeding, suffering for 12 years. I don't presume to understand the timing of the Lord's sovereignty. I don't presume to understand why sometimes the people of God pray for miraculous healing and breakthrough in people's lives. And it happens. People get radically, physically, totally healed today as well. And sometimes when the same people are praying in the same faith to the same God, under God's sovereignty, that physical healing, that breakthrough doesn't come on this side of heaven. Certainly, certainly the hope of salvation and eternal life is always true for us. By his wounds we are healed. 
So we have to learn and operate and trust under the sovereignty of God if we get the miraculous breakthrough we're praying for or if we don't. I've been on both sides of it. I've been on both sides of it. We have to learn to pray and ask and to trust if it doesn't happen on this side of heaven. But Jesus is saying to us, don't be afraid, just believe. So I pray as a church that we would live our lives, that you and I together in this community, we would live our lives and we would activate our faith and our trust in God. It looks like something. Active faith and trust in God in the midst of hopelessness and in the midst of really hard realities, in the midst of asking God for supernatural thing. It looks like something. It doesn't look passive, it looks active. So I pray that we would do that and we would believe God for big things. He's the God of miracles. And I pray that as James 5 exhorts us to do, that we would step into each other's lives and we would pray for radical healing in our lives. That we would do that. It's an exhortation from James in James 5. And he says it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So I pray that we would believe God to do miraculous things and we would pray for God to do miraculous things. But I also pray that we would know who God is in his sovereignty and trust him in his sovereignty, whether we get the breakthrough we're asking for or the breakthrough comes on the other side of this life. Physical healing may come through for us on this side of heaven or it may be on the other side when we get our resurrected bodies. Hallelujah. But regardless, regardless, Peter declares this to us. First Peter 2, 24, I've already said this verse. By his wounds we are healed. It doesn't say we're going to be. It doesn't say you have to wait to heaven to get it. By his wounds we are healed. In Christ Jesus, in a relationship with Christ, you are already healed. You are already saved. You are already in eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start when you and I pass from this life to the next. You're already in it. By his wounds, you are healed. Do you believe that this morning? I want to close our time by uh, reminding you of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's story. I think they help us with the tension of trusting God for big things, praying God for miraculous things, but also knowing that if those big and miraculous things don't come through in my life, I'm going to trust God either way. Either way this goes, I'm going to trust Yahweh. That's who Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were. If you remember the story, it's in Daniel chapter 3. There was this evil king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He actually became a follower of Jesus because of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he built this huge golden thing. And he's like, everybody's got to bow down to my to my gold statue of myself. Sounds real humble, doesn't it? And he, the law was that you had to bow down and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to that golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says to them, Daniel 3, starting in verse 15, if you do not worship, if you do not worship me, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able, 
is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver he will deliver us out of your hand that is trust in the god of miracles that is praying for miraculous breakthrough that's what that is but then they say this but if not but if not be it known to you king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up we will continue to worship yahweh If we are physically saved or if we perish in that fiery furnace, Yahweh is our only hope. And I pray that we will worship God, trust God, worship God in the same way that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego served, believed, prayed, trusted, trusted in God. Let's pray together. God, you are the God of miracles and we bless your name. We thank you that these stories awaken us, that you are an all loving and all powerful God. But I believe these stories open the door wide for us to believe and to trust. And that in doing that, we open open the, the, the way somehow, some way, I don't understand it all, Lord, for your power to work. And so we pray for breakthrough in our lives, Lord. We pray for healing in our lives, Lord. And I pray for a faith that trusts you, that if in your sovereign will, you bring the radical physical healing, or if in your sovereign will, we must wait to experience that fully and completely on the other side of this life. By your wounds, we are healed. And so we stand and declare and worship your name, Jesus, your work in our lives. In Jesus' name.